The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. And welcome. My name is Burgett, for those of you that may not know me. And since we are small, could we just go around and say your name so I know you? So, first of all, Andrea asked me to apologize to you for telling you that she would be here this week. She forgot that she had a meeting at Spirit Rock. So, I'll be with you today and also again next week. And I don't know any specific announcements except um, this coming Saturday is the once-a-year immersion Saturday, immersion practice, I guess, um, that will go from 6 a.m. to 9 p.m. with Gil. And I believe both lunch and a uh, light dinner are served. It's an intense day, but a very, very nice one. So, this morning, um, I'd like to talk to you about the power and wisdom of stories. We have a rich tradition in Buddhist practice of stories, teaching stories, myths. We also, in this practice, are quite willing to admit that many of the stories, many of um, of of the things we talk about are myths, such as the Buddha's birth. There's a myth that the Buddha was born from his mother's left side while she was on her way back to her parents' place, and they stopped in the garden of Lumbini. We freely acknowledge that this is a myth. We, don't, we have no idea, of course, of knowing how the birth actually happened. Um, that's not what's important. What's important is what the story or the myth points to. Like but unlike the story of Jesus' birth. The story that is told in Christianity is that, what, that it was an immaculate conception that it was a virgin birth. And unfortunately, there are groups that get really solidified and think this is the absolute truth, and if you don't believe that it was a virgin birth, then you miss the whole teaching. And people can get so upset, they fight over it. What can both the story of Jesus' birth and the story or myth of the Buddha's birth point to? For me, they both point to the fact that, listen up, this is an auspicious birth. This is not any ordinary birth. This is not any ordinary person. This is a very special person. 
And it seems to me that's the point of the stories, not whether, you know, it's factually true or it actually happened this way or not. And this is the importance or the value of stories. They point to a larger truth. Sometimes it's much easier to get a point by a story which you hear and often creates mental images than it is just by somebody uh, teaching or preaching a, a theory, a, um, maybe a very, very valuable teaching. But sometimes it's not so exciting or your mind wanders or it just doesn't sink in the way a story does. So what always comes to mind when I say that is the story of Nasruddin, Mullah Nasruddin, a Sufi. There are many stories about Mullah, but one that I've heard for many years and I particularly like because it conjures a a mental image is that of Mullah looking under a lamppost for his key. He's down on his hands and knees searching for this key that he's lost. And his friends come along, and they say, Mullah, what are you doing? Well, I'm looking for my key. Oh, here, let us help you. And so they get down on their hands and knees, and they're helping Mullah look for his key. Well, there's no key. They don't find a key. So finally, one of them says, Mullah, where did you drop your key, or where did you lose your key? And he says, oh, I dropped it in the house, but there's more light out here. And there are several things we can glean from this story. One that stands out for me is how we so often waste our energy. We don't use our energy skillfully. Um, I have caught myself, especially looking for things, looking in the same place over and over and saying to myself, I've looked there three times. They are not there. (laughs) Why do I keep going back? Because something in my mind says, but that's where they should be. But they're not. (laughs) And so I'm wasting my energy. Well, there are lots of ways in practice, of course, that we can unskillfully use our energy. And it doesn't help. It doesn't... Um, increase our practice, it's really a waste of energy. So this story, it seems to me, points to the skillful use of energy. He could look out under the light all day, and he's not going to find his key if the key is in the house. And as I say that, I'm thinking of, you know, the house is sometimes a symbol or an analogy Uh, a metaphor for the self, the individual. And, you know, so many, uh, if not all, of the world's major traditions talk about how we wander the world over looking for what is actually right here inside and has been there all the time. Meanwhile, we're wandering around looking for it. So, the Buddha, like Jesus, who followed him, 
taught differently to different audiences. Depending on who was listening, he might tell a slightly different story or give a teaching in a slightly different way. Not not because he wasn't consistent, but because he knew to whom he was speaking. If he was speaking to monks and nuns, then he would speak in one way. If he was speaking to a group of lay people, then he might speak a little differently, simply because their experiences, their understanding might be slightly different. And so he wanted to be relevant to his audience. I'm reminded when I was a child in the Christian tradition, um, I, I was pretty active, pretty devout, but I was so frustrated with Jesus teaching in parables. I was of the personality, you know, just tell me what to do and then I can do it. And I didn't understand the parables, and I certainly didn't appreciate them. What, what is this about? You know, just speak plainly. Well, now, <laughs> many, many years later, I appreciate parables. I appreciate stories or myths. Joseph Campbell spoke about the power of myth. Because things aren't always so absolutely clear, are they? Things can be very nuanced. Things can change. Things are fluid. They're not static, thank goodness. And things change with the time. Maybe not the basic underlying teaching or understanding, but the way we apply it or the way we understand it or how we make it relevant to our lives now can change. And that's the value. of stories. Stories are more able to change with time and place than sometimes a direct teaching can. So stories come out of the culture. Many um, religious or spiritual Uh, practices, rituals, are more culturally and historically based than actually religiously. Of course, the Buddha taught at a certain time in history, in ancient India, and he was part of that culture. So naturally, a lot of his stories, his teachings come out of that time and that culture. Jesus was born 500 years later in a different culture, the Middle East, and so many of his understandings and his teachings come out of that culture. We have Shakespeare as a great example. Shakespeare's stories while very relevant at his time, are made relevant now because of their timeless themes. 
And so now many of Shakespeare's uh, plays are done with a more modern setting. Sometimes they're set here in California, sometimes in New York, sometimes in Europe. With They can have modern-day dress, modern language, and they're still relevant. In fact, they're very relevant, aren't they? Sometimes it's amazing how relevant they are because human beings and our experience basically are very, very similar. It's the time and um, the situation, the, uh, the place, the culture that can change the looks, but not the basic underlying teaching. Like Aesop's fables, that probably many of us read when we were young. Um, it was the underlying ethic, the underlying moral, we say, that was important. And so they remain relative. So um, you, some of you may remember, or maybe you weren't here a couple of years ago, Bhikkhu Analyo was here, a very um, erudite professor of Buddhism at Hamburg University. And <clears throat> I was amazed at how he taught. He very much taught by story. And the one night I came here to hear him, he talked about the bamboo acrobat. And basically he laid out the basic story and then opened it up, and of course the room was full, opened it up for people's comments. And I don't know if you're familiar with the bamboo acrobat. Um, I'll read just a little bit of it. On a certain occasion, the exalted one was dwelling in the Sumba country, in a township of the Sumbas called Sadaka. There the exalted one addressed the monks. Once upon a time, monks, a bamboo acrobat set up his pole and called to his pupil, saying, Come, my lad, climb the pole and stand on my shoulders. All right, master, replied the pupil to the bamboo acrobat. The student then climbed the pole and stood on his master's shoulder. Then, monks, the bamboo acrobat said to his pupil, Now, my lad, you protect me well, and I shall protect you. Thus watched and warded by each other, we will show our tricks, get a good fee, and come down safe from the bamboo pole. At these words, the pupil said to the bamboo acrobat, No, no, that won't do, master. You look after yourself, master, and I'll look after myself. Thus watched and warded, each by himself, we'll show our tricks, get a good fee, and come down safe from the bamboo pole. Therein, that is the right way, said the exalted one. Just as the pupil said to his master, I'll protect myself, so monks, should the foundation of mindfulness be practiced, I'll protect others, so should the foundation of mindfulness be practiced. Protecting oneself, monks, one protects others. Protecting others, one protects 
oneself. So, you know, at first it seems pretty obvious, right? Both are true. We protect ourselves, we protect others, we protect others, we protect ourselves. It's not either or, it's both. But it was really astounding that night, as time went on and people spoke, how many different perspectives, angles, thoughts, ideas came up. And the beauty of the story is there's no right or wrong. So Bhikkhu Analyo didn't say, oh yes, yes, that's very right, I'm glad you said that. Well, no, that's not quite what the Buddha was saying. He didn't do that. He accepted it all. And we all got a chance to see what fit for us. You know, some things that were said didn't have any relevance for me. That wasn't my experience. That didn't speak to me. But a lot of what was said was, oh, I hadn't thought of it. I hadn't looked at it that way. And that was very very helpful. So it expands the understanding of that particular story, or the deeper message that it's not a matter of protecting myself and not protecting you. It's a matter of protecting myself and protecting you. Both. And that's how we keep safe. So, as I was thinking about doing this talk, I was reading an article by Rita Gross, who is also a Buddhist scholar, and she was talking about stories, myths, and taking forms too seriously. So she talked about the Mahayana teachings. Some of you may know the Mahayana teachings are said to have arisen a few hundred, maybe 500 years after um, the Buddhist time. And they form the basis of Zen, Tibetan practice, and Pure Land. So the Theravada teachings, which we follow, are said to be the very earliest teachings, the teachings from the time of the Buddha. And then the Mahayana came at this later date. And there is apparently a myth that um, the Mahayana teachings were hidden at the bottom of the sea in Naga territory. Naga, um, Nagas are sea serpents because the people weren't ready to hear them. But then in the second century, Nagarjuna is said to have rescued them. So again, you know, of course, it's a myth. Teachings weren't buried at the bottom of the ocean. But what is it saying? What is that myth suggesting to us? That perhaps the Mahayana teachings, true or not, (laughs) were an advanced practice. That people at the time of the Buddha were not prepared to hear. The Mahayana teachings actually are not that different Um, Some are slightly. They carry the teachings of the Bodhisattva. In the Theravada tradition, we talk about the Arhat being the enlightened one. 
in the Mahayana tradition, the Bodhisattva is the one who... um, Sometimes I liken the Bodhisattva to a saint in Christian teachings, the one who... Uh, is said, gives up or puts off his own enlightenment until all beings can be enlightened together. Or another way the Bodhisattva is described is that one who is enlightened and comes back time after time to help other people become enlightened. So who knows whether, you know, that was not appropriate at the time of the Buddha. It doesn't matter. The point is the practice of the bodhisattva. And that definition has expanded now um, so that any of us that are practicing for the benefit of others or working for the benefit of others are often called bodhisattvas. We use the term much more loosely now than used to be. So Rita also says that the teachings on impermanence and the teachings on interdependent co-arising or dependent co-arising, the idea that things arise together, nothing is separate, nothing arises alone, causes and conditions. Everything is in flux, everything is fluid, everything is changing suggests the, um, the use of stories to point to this constant change and this flexibility and this fluidity. So that stories, practices, understandings can be flexible and relative not, they can point to the ultimate truth, but the story itself is not the ultimate truth. It is a relative truth. It is used for the point of teaching. So Rita suggests, and I think this is so important, that we must take our stories seriously, but not literally. Seriously, but not literally. They do point to something very important, but they're not literal. So they're not to be taken as absolute truth and then argued about. She also says, literalism and fundamentalism are toxic to a deep and profound spirituality. I like that. Literalism and fundamentalism are toxic to a deep and profound spiritual life. Why? Because they're so limiting. If we take things just literally, or just in one way, it limits us to often a very great extent. And the teachings are not meant to be limited. They're meant to be available to us for our daily lives. They're meant for us to be able to apply to our situation right here and now. 
She quotes um, Black Elk as saying, This they tell, and whether it happened so or not, I do not know. But if you think about it, you can see that it's true. We can find truth in any story. And not just necessarily the absolute literalism. Also, we can make up stories. Gil loves to make up stories and has made a collection of his stories in this book, A Monastery Within. Um, Often he'll take a teaching and build a story around it. He's great at doing that. And because of, of this understanding that stories often convey uh, a teaching and understanding in a much more dramatic, much more meaningful way than just a direct teaching. So a story from his book that I have found helpful. This is The Deer and the Tiger. And maybe when I'm finished, I'll ask you what you got from it. There was once a monk who was known for his relaxed and trusting nature. No matter what was happening, the monk would smile. If circumstances were challenging, he would say, If we can accept how things are and keep a positive attitude, everything we need will unfold on its own. Sounds pretty reasonable, doesn't it? Sounds like the teaching. Once, when the monk was on a month-long retreat in a hermitage deep in the forest, he witnessed a remarkable interaction between a deer and a tiger. The deer, injured, came stumbling into the clearing in front of the hermitage. Some time later, a tiger wandered into the clearing and saw the wounded deer. The monk held his breath, convinced that the tiger would surely kill and eat the deer, which would be reasonable, wouldn't it? The deer, too, was clearly worried. But as it could no longer walk, the deer accepted its fate, lying very still in the grass. To the monk's surprise, the tiger spent the next few days standing guard over the deer until the deer was well enough to wander off again on its own. The monk was elated at this sight as it seemed to validate his idea that if we could only accept whatever happens fully enough, the boundless goodness of the universe would take care of us. How many times have we heard something like that? (laughs) Of course. A few days later, lightning struck a neighboring hermitage only a hundred feet away. At first, the roof smoldered and smoked. The monk accepted this. The roof then caught on fire. The monk accepted this. Then the rest of the hut started burning. The monk accepted this, too. Soon, the entire hermitage was gone, and the nun who lived there was slightly injured from attempting to battle the flames. When the abbess came to investigate the fire, she asked the monk why he didn't go and help put out the fire. 
In reply, the monk told the story of the tiger and the deer and how it had taught him the importance of surrendering and accepting things in the way the deer had done. You fool, said the abbess. Certainly there are times when you should be like the deer. But if you are to be a spiritually mature person, you should also know when to be like the tiger. With that, the abbess sent the monk away. Don't come back until you know how to be a tiger. Only when you accept this part of yourself can you understand what it means to accept how things are. (laughs) Dramatic, huh? But very pointed. And I find it interesting because all along the way, as I was first reading, I thought, well, yes, yes, we are taught to accept things, right? Yes, to accept whatever happens. Equanimity, right? Whatever comes to us. But (laughs) we're also taught to use discriminating wisdom. We're not taught to just roll over and play dead or just let anything happen because we're accepting. We're taught that we must be wise and skillful. So this was the point, the abbess wanted to make, right? That you must also be a tiger. It's great to be accepting. And there are times when acceptance means... Literally, you must do something. And so she sent the monk off to learn to be a tiger. Or actually, she didn't say learn. She said to accept this part of yourself, suggesting that we all have the tiger within us as well as the deer. But sometimes in spiritual practice, um, I think I've been guilty of it myself, it's easy to become like the deer and think that's how we should always be and forget that the tiger has an important place also. So I'm curious. Anybody have uh, thoughts about that? Uh, Did you hear it any differently or... It reminds me of the serenity prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Yes, yes. All right. Um, Besides what you suggested as an interpretation, I thought it was important that this happened at a hermitage deep in the forest. Um, because I think it was pointing to our deeper, perhaps unconscious, and that that's where we have to look. That's where we would look to find both the equanimity and the tiger in us. Very good. I'm glad you picked up on that. Yeah. Anybody else? I just the the serenity prayer. <clears throat> it, uh, it 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 awoke a new meaning for me. I I know the serenity prayer well, uh-huh. <clears throat> and um, the um, 
Well, as you were telling it in the serenity prayer, was going over and over. That's what it is. But the courage to change the things I can, uh-huh. and then the wisdom to know the difference. So it brought me to a deeper level mm. uh, or acceptance of the serenity prayer for yeah. many things. Uh-huh. Good, good. Yeah, courage. That's an important word, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Th- that too, when you're reading the other one, uh, surrender. Mm-hmm. You didn't mention it in, in mm-hmm. the, the deer and the tiger, but mm-hmm. surrender is another one, and yet I, d- I haven't really put the two together, acceptance being the same as surrender, but uh, it's again, don't get too literal. Yes, yes. And and I think that's another piece of it, not to get too attached to how something should be, even if it's a very valuable teaching. One time I was talking with Angie Boisevain, a Zen teacher, and in Zen, the understanding is when you have pain, you just breathe through it, sit through it, and it can get very, very intense, but at some point it just opens up. And I was saying, Angie, that never happened for me. And she she just laughed and said something like, well, there it is. <laughs> I don't remember her exact words, but it was like, see, you can't even hold on to that teaching. <laughs> it might be a very valuable teaching. Might work 90% of the time. But you can't hold on to it. Didn't work in my case. <laughs> for whatever reason. <laughs> that was the teaching for me. Yeah. Somebody, in relation to this story, when I read it once, somebody suggested, well, you know, what if the tiger had been hungry, hadn't eaten for a long time? The story might be very different. doing okay let me um, there are many books of stories in Buddhist practice and I've already mentioned Gills a monastery within this one stories of the spirit stories of the heart which is edited by Christina Feldman and Jack Cornfield has a huge collection of um, Buddhist, Christian, Jewish, um, Islamic, Hindu stories. And uh, they're all mixed in, which is lovely, because then you see how the stories, you know, a Zen story is just as relevant to us as as a Theravada story. Uh, A Jewish story can be just as relevant as as a Buddhist story. They, um, they all carry um, similar kinds of messages. This book has been retitled and republished, and I don't remember the, or I, I don't know if I ever knew the, the name, the new name. So I said that Nasruddin, Mullah Nasruddin, Uh, appears in many Sufi stories, and here's a short one. 
Nasruddin was now an old man looking back on his life. He sat with his friends in the tea shop telling his story. When I was young, I was fiery. I wanted to awaken everyone. I prayed to Allah to give me the strength to change the world. We can all relate to that. <laughs> in midlife, I awoke one day and realized my life was half over and I had changed no one. So I prayed to Allah to give me the strength to change those close around me who so much needed it. Alas, now I am old, and my prayer is simpler. Allah, I ask, please give me the strength to at least change myself. <laughs> A man whose axe was missing suspected his neighbor's son. The boy walked like a thief, looked like a thief, and spoke like a thief. But the man found his axe while he was digging in the valley. And the next time he saw his neighbor's son, the boy walked, looked, and spoke like any other child. <laughs> How true, right? It's so easy. It's so easy to... And we all do this all the time, right? We interpret things, and we're so sure that our interpretation is correct. <laughs> Until we found out, find out differently, it's not so correct. Then the trick is, can we let go? Can we let go of that interpretation? Can we let go of that perspective and open to what is now a new understanding, a new perspective, a new way of seeing things. In the age when life on earth was full, no one paid any special attention to worthy men nor did they single out the man of ability. Rulers were simply the highest branches on the trees, and the people were like deer in the woods. They were honest and righteous without realizing they were doing their duty. They loved each other and did not know this was love of neighbor. They deceived no one, yet did not know they were men to be trusted. They were reliable and did not know that this was good faith. They lived freely together, giving and taking, and did not know they were generous. For this reason, their deeds have not been narrated. They made no history. This is from Cheng Zhu, uh, probably from the Taoist tradition. And I like it because it reminds me of the understanding in Buddhist practice of no trace. I think that's bigger in Zen than, than in Theravada. But the idea of leaving no trace. And that can be in terms of anything we do 
or in terms of our entire life. So we do what needs to be done, and that's it. And often in Zen, you know, they're raking the path behind their walking, so there's no, no trace. So often, unfortunately, when we do things, we want to be recognized. We want people to know what we have done, to think well of us, maybe even to think we're special. And the idea of no trace is that we do just what needs to be done without any gaining idea, we say, without any need to be acknowledged or recognized. We just do it because that's what's there. Kind of like taking care of our children or our grandchildren, right? We just do it because that's what's in front of us. That's what's important to be done without any need for adoration or recognition. So in Buddhist practice, we have quite a collection, 300-plus animal wisdom stories that are called the Jataka Tales. You may or may not have heard of the Jataka Tales. They are said to be stories of the Buddha's former lives when when he was uh, perfecting himself to become the Buddha. And they're told in terms of animals, um, you know, whether he actually lived animal lives, who knows. But the, again, the stories are told in terms of animals and sometimes considered children's stories, but actually they speak to us as well. They're very much um, meaningful to adults. And there's a huge collection of them. Undoubtedly, if you've come here very long, you've heard some of them. Maybe the one of the little bird that was trying to put out the forest fire. Or um, what else? Hmm. I can't think uh, right offhand, but... um, well, there's, there's the one of the, this is very short, but the starfish, that there was a little boy on the beach that was tossing starfish back into the ocean. And um, somebody came along and asked him what he was doing. And he said, you know, he was saving the starfish by throwing them back in the ocean. And the person said, what good does it do to throw that one back in? There are hundreds or thousands or whatever, and, or what difference does it make, he said. And the little boy said, makes a difference to this one. That's nice to remember when there's so much to be done and you can only do one thing. It does make a difference if you do that one thing. There's another book that I have just recently discovered the book group here at IMC is working with it now. It's called, Who Ordered This Truckload of Dung? (laughs) Inspiring Stories for Welcoming Life's Difficulties. 
And this is by Ajahn Brahm. Ajahn Brahm is um, abbot of a monastery in Australia. Um, very, very well known, controversial at times, but um, uh, also admired. So here's one from his book called The Idiot. Someone calls you an idiot. Then you start thinking, how can they call me an idiot? They've got no right to call me an idiot. How rude to call me an idiot. I'll get them back for calling me an idiot. And you suddenly realize that you have just let them call you an idiot another four times. Every time you remember what they said, you allow them to call you an idiot yet again. Therein lies the problem. If someone calls you an idiot and you immediately let it go, then it doesn't bother you. There is the solution. Why allow other people to control your inner happiness? (laughs) And this is a good one. The dog that had the last laugh. My first year as a monk in northeast Thailand coincided with the last year of the Vietnam War. Close to Ajahn Chah's monastery near the regional city of Uban was an American Air Force base. Ajahn Chah enjoyed telling us the following true story on how to deal with abuse. Ajahn Chah, uh, as you may or may not know, was a very well-respected Buddhist master in Thailand who died in uh, 1990, I think, or 91, and was um, one of Jack Cornfield's teachers. And many people, uh, many monks, nuns, long-term practitioners knew Ajahn Chah. An American GI was traveling from the base into town on a rickshaw. On the outskirts of town, they passed a roadside bar where some friends of the rickshaw driver were already quite drunk. Hey, they shouted in Thai, where are you taking that dirty dog to? Then they laughed, pointing to the American soldier. For a moment, the driver was alarmed. The soldier was a very big man. And in Thailand, calling someone a dirty dog meant an inevitable fight. However, the soldier was quietly looking around, enjoying the beautiful scenery. Obviously, he did not understand the Thai language. The driver, deciding to have some fun at the American's expense, shouted back, I'm taking this filthy dog and throwing him in the Moon River to give the smelly mongrel a wash. As the driver and his drunken friends laughed, the soldier remained unmoved. When they reached their destination and the driver put out his hand for the journey's fare, the American soldier quietly began to walk away. The rickshaw driver excitedly shouted after him in broken but clear English, Hey, sir, you pay me dollars. To which the big American soldier calmly turned around and said in perfect accented tie, dogs don't have money. 
<laughs> oh, if we could have the presence, right? <laughs> to think of such things. So uh, just point out one more. Just by coincidence, the current issue of Inquiring Mind is called Once Upon a Time, Stories and Poems of the Dharma. <laughs> so I encourage you to take a look at it. As always, there are many good um, offerings. So we have just a few minutes. Um, are there comments, questions, maybe other stories? Um, jo- my, re- my recollection is that Joseph Campbell uh, interpreted the virgin birth of Christianity as the birth of the spirit out of the body or the flesh. But that's what it meant. I uh, wonder if there's a, if you know of any interpretation of the Buddha's birth out of the left side of his mother that might be more uh, specific than just an important birth. I don't think I do. No, I don't think I've... Okay. I'll make one up then. Yeah. <laughs> Have you got it? No, not, no, not now. Yet. Okay. <laughs> I know that she reached up, um, you know, to grab a hold of a branch. They had stopped at this Lumbini garden to rest. And I guess she was feeling labor pains, and she reached up to grab a hold of a of a, a limb, and the Buddha was born. Of course, he wasn't the Buddha then; he was Siddhartha. And took two or three steps, and claimed, "I alone am the world honored one." Yeah. Um, but I don't. Yeah, I don't know. Otherwise, the left side. There's much about, I'm sorry to add this. No. There's much about the stories of Jesus' birth in Christianity that make it a plain and ordinary birth. Uh, That's right. Other than the the notion of a virgin birth. Yes, that's right. That's right. This isn't what I wanted to say, but isn't the left side the intuitive side when, when people talk about the brain? Maybe it comes out of that. It's actually the right side of the brain, but that does control the left side of the okay. body. So, okay. <laughs> um, I'd be interested to have you say a little more about um, making a difference. You describe Zen as sort of wipe out your footprints as you go, and certainly not to make a difference as um, an ego activity. Right. What else does the Buddha say about making a difference as, as, a, as a person living? Well, the idea is, is very much that everything we do matters. This is, of course, the understanding of karma. That every action we take, whether of the body or speech or mind, even our thoughts, everything matters. And so being very attentive, very mindful, and very careful of everything we do or say. 
at the same time, letting go of results. Because we can't control the results. With our best intention and our most skillful action, we can't control what happens. And so um, to act with equanimity or to act skillfully is to take care of every single moment and let go without being attached to whatever happens. So in Buddhist practice, the end does not justify the means. The means are everything. And although we have an intention for the end, we hold it lightly because we don't know. And this is very different because, um, unfortunately, in many, say, activist groups, there is a goal, there is an end, and that's what's important. And, unfortunately, often, the means can get pretty sloppy or can even get harmful. And that's considered okay because the end is, is so righteous. But in Buddhist understanding... Um, every step is important. And if we get the goal, great. If we don't, we don't. But we know, we can know that we acted with integrity in every step. And you're absolutely right, without ego. Just, um, just doing what is in front of us. We are generous... And, and that's what that one um, story was suggesting, that, that these ancient people, they just did what they did. They helped each other, they gave, and they took without thinking, oh, I'm being generous. <laughs> so often, you know, generosity, of course, is a huge practice in, in Buddhist practice. But we can get caught with trying to be a generous person. And then the emphasis is on the person rather than on generosity. And the idea is to be generous just because generosity is valuable or there's a need and we fill it. And it's not about us filling it, but just that it is being filled. Does that? Mm-hmm. Anything else? Were any of you here the morning that I read the Banyan Deer story? You were? What did you think of that? Can, it, yeah, it was a while ago. And was it, it's, like a, it's like a story, but then not the same thing, but a similar situation keeps happening. Because he's, isn't he, like they have to kill the one deer. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's an incredible story of courage, and um, but it's also one that there are so many different ways people can take it. When I when I read it to one group, the first thing said was that it was about being vegetarian. Well, that was the most obvious, you know, first thing that that presented itself. Um, but then it went on and on, and, and there was so much about courage. And, and as you were saying, the courage to change what we can, and the persistence, the willingness 
of the banyan deer to keep speaking up for um, first the other group of deer and then all of the animals that walk and then all of the animals that fly and then all of the animals that swim uh, until eventually he had the human king not killing any any animal. Um, that's that's quite a story. Yeah. Um, not directly related to what we're talking about, but I just saw with my family, I don't know if you've seen it, that movie 42 about Jackie Robinson, <laughs> and it just kind of reminds me of what you're talking about, but it was just really well done and really good, and if you have a chance to see it, I'd highly recommend it. It was um, the movie, the Jackie Robinson movie about the first African-American to integrate baseball. And I think one of the reasons, well, I brought my kids, but one of the reasons I liked it is I'm sure they didn't show all the difficult situations he was really, I mean, they showed some of it, and they used, you know, the N-word and things like that, but I'm sure they didn't show as much of the violence and the threats. They did, so it was nice you could bring your kids, and it wasn't, like I was worried it'd be too scary. But it was real, it's just one of those movies you leave, and you just think, wow, that was really, really good. So... It kind of reminds me of what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yes, very much a story, a true one. <laughs> yeah, that's what makes it that, so amazing and just the courage he had and he yeah. didn't fight back ever and he just took all the negativity and um, was such a... Because I, I think basketball was not integrated, so I think it was the first major sport. Mm-hmm. I think and, right. um, yeah, so it's just re- really well done. I'd yeah. highly recommend it. Yeah. yeah, we could say he was a bodhisattva. doing it clearly not just for himself, but for all other black players. Mm-hmm. And there's even a reporter that's kind of like his person to help him with things. And, he, and it's funny, you know, he's using a typewriter and he's in the stands. And he says, you know, Jackie, um, you're not doing this for players, but you notice I don't sit in the press box because there's all the white reporters in the press box and he's just sitting in the regular stands typing on his typewriter. And then there's another scene where the manager, who's the Harrison Ford person who's really good, says, um, oh, I saw some kids playing baseball, and I saw a 10-year-old little white boy, and he put his hands in the dirt before he used the bat, and just like you do, and he was pretending to be you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. So really good. Thank you. Yeah, I, I was at a... Actually, I saw Jack Cornfield last night, there was a save a benefit um, up in the city, and people do chanting, and there's some well, very well-known people from Jayantal. Yeah. yeah. Um, and if you, and since it's a lot of a Hindu kind of basis, there's so many stories in the, the Hindu gods and goddesses. It's just like one after the other. So it's just a rich area if you want to investigate stories and parables and all sorts of stuff like that. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I just have one quick story that happened to me, and I often find that if it happens to me and I see the story, it's helpful. So I was at a school event, and I was sitting at a table. There were four of us. There was me and a grandson, and there was another woman with her grandson. And this woman spilled her tea on the table, and um, she just sat there, and then her grandson got up and got a a cloth to wipe it up. And it was going through my head. I was thinking, well... Why isn't she doing anything? Should I do something? 
and you know, forming some judgments about this woman. And then about 15 minutes later, they brought up a wheelchair, and this woman got into a wheelchair and was wheeled away. Beautiful, yes. That speaks to the, our perspective, doesn't it? Yes, and how, how quickly it changes. And, uh, and believe, and believe them. That's, that's the problem, we believe them. <laughs> I still do, even though I remind myself, you know, but it's so clear, <laughs> just like I'm sure it was to you, until it's not. Yeah. yeah. So that's wonderful, because we see then that stories are actually happening all the time, all around us. Sometimes it's easier, or we think it's easier, to read a story in a book. But here we have examples where stories are with us all the time. And if we can just notice, notice, and use them um, everywhere. You can use them talking to friends or to grandchildren or whomever. It would, wouldn't it? Yeah. yeah. We do a similar thing on New Year's Eve, but it's not always stories. Sometimes it is. Yeah. But that would be a great idea. We could make it a story night. Bring your favorite story. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be wonderful. Okay. Well, it's five after, so we probably should stop. Thank you all. <laughs>